Before we start the show, I want to thank the thousands of you, the thousands who have read This Book Will Make You Dangerous. Many of you have told me that the book's unique way of exploring fear, confidence, and purpose has had a lasting impact, that it's much easier for you to get clarity and direction about what really matters and what you want to do in this lifetime. It's also amazing to hear that quite a few of you have read it multiple times and even bought copies for friends, so thank you again. Just in case you weren't aware, I created a free companion video course for the book. And in these videos, I walk you through the big takeaways and practices from each chapter. And I even cover some extra stuff that's not included in the book. Information on how to access the course is in newer versions of the book. And if you own an older version of the book and you don't know how to access the course, just hit me up via the contact form at triplinear.com and we'll get you all set up. And one last thing, if you're one of the thousands who have already read the book, please consider leaving an honest review on Amazon so that others can decide if it's right for them. Again, thank you so much for reading. This book will make you dangerous. And now let's start the show. You are listening to the new man beyond the macho jerk and the new age wimp. Your host is men's coach, Trip Lemire. Do you find it rare to be in a great mood? What good is striving for success if it's just going to keep you in a lousy state of mind? And are meds the only option if life is really kicking your ass? Dr. Will Vanderveer is leading a revolution in modern psychiatry while also developing a controversial yet effective approach to treating PTSD. Today, he's here to help us better understand our brains and optimize our mood. Before we get started, I just want to say, if you have serious questions or concerns about your mental health, don't go it alone. Find a trained professional and get help. Let's talk about the brain. Uh, Many guys get into personal development because they want to improve their overall experience in life. They want to feel powerful professionally. They want to have rewarding, fulfilling relationships. They want to feel lit up and alive about what they're creating. They want to have a deep sense of peace about what's happening in their lives. Now, everything I just described there is an experience, and we need our brains to have experiences, all right? So if these guys are busting their ass to improve their life experiences and they're not feeling any different, then they may start to believe that they're doing something, quote, the wrong way. Sure, they may look at things like their body fat or their bank account or the person they're in a relationship with and gauge progress that way from an external perspective. But ultimately, whether they realize it or not, it's their emotional state, their internal experience that's telling them if they're on track or not. Now, they may have all the great stuff happening on the outside, but if their internal emotional experience is still anxious or drained or depressed or indifferent, then, like I said, they may start to think they need to do more or that somehow they're screwed up or that their life is screwed up. But what if that wasn't true? What if the experience was being governed by the brain so that no matter how hard this guy busted his ass and got it right, he may not have the experience he's wanting or that he's shooting for? So this has happened to me. At times, I've wondered why I wasn't satisfied or able to relax and simply enjoy some of the great things that have been happening in my life. And I would then turn the blade on myself. I created a story 
that I was somehow messed up and I turned it into a character flaw. But with a little research and some changes in my diet, I was able to very quickly get my brain and my moods back on track. But up until then, I assumed incorrectly that our mood and outlook was mostly based on the types of stuff we're thinking and uh, like life situations, things like self-criticism or if something happened like I got in an argument with my wife. I thought that those types of things governed my mood. But then I started to understand the brain a bit more and I realized that much of our experience in mood is largely governed and influenced by chemistry. And so for many guys out there, there's a stigma around therapy, around psychiatry, and taking meds in particular. But wouldn't it be great if we didn't have to work harder, make a gazillion dollars, be better than the other guy, control our wife and kids, or numb our emotions in order to be okay? Wouldn't it be cool if there were other options to get our brain functioning optimally other than taking meds? This is why I've asked Dr. Will Vandeveer to come on the show today. He's been practicing integrative psychiatry for over 14 years. He's a leader in what's being called a revolution to educate 10,000 doctors to help us optimize our brains without depending on pharmaceutical treatment alone. And you can learn more about him by visiting willvanderveer.com and psychiatrymasterclass.com. Will, thanks for taking the time to talk today. Thanks so much for having me on the show, Tripp. First off, tell us a little bit about what you commonly see when men come into your office. Describe that scenario a bit. Well, I think you described it pretty well in your intro. Um, I see a lot of guys who have a lot of things going for them. They've got the the partner, the job. Um, you know, they're feeling like they're hitting on all cylinders with their career, but they feel empty um, or stressed out or maxed out. Um, they're not sleeping well. Um, and what we like to do is take a big picture look at what all the different inputs are into the brain. Um, and we can get into that in some detail today if you want to. Okay. Well, I'm just curious, when the brain is getting these different inputs, right, when it's getting the nutrition and the sleep and the care that it needs, describe, is there a natural emotional state? Is there a baseline state? Yes, I think so. I think it's a a state of relaxed presence. Uh, We're alert and awake, but relaxed. Okay. And and we can measure this state with brainwaves using neurofeedback technology to see you know, if people are in that state or not. And you, you kind of know when you're in it, you know, um, you're, you're enjoying your life. You're satisfied. Um, it's not to say you're not pushing yourself to grow your business or, or to push into new self growth directions, but, but you're happy with who you are. Okay. I, I, I think this is huge because if this is the foundation, then it doesn't mean that we need something external to achieve this state of, of relaxed presence. And, and I heard a, a, kind of an undercurrent of, of self-acceptance. I'm okay with who I am. Is that right? That, we, that that's just naturally who we are. If we allow that to be, we don't necessarily need to go strive for it out there. Is that right? Right. That's, uh, that's the natural state. And um, I think that we, uh, we don't realize that that's even out there, a lot of us, because we don't have that experience very much. But it, it can definitely be cultivated and, and achieved with the right kind of support and training. Okay. So if that's the natural state, then what's kicking the brain out of balance? What's disrupting that and blocking most of us from having that balanced state? Well, the, the, the sort of joke on traditional psychiatry is that what's causing that is a Zoloft deficiency. 
<laughs> okay, so so what does that mean? We, okay. We're not taking enough uh, pharmaceutical. <laughs> in other words, um, well, your problem is not is probably not a deficiency in an antidepressant. That's probably not the physiologic cause of your problems. Okay. I'd be feeling um, better, but I don't have enough Zoloft in me. Is that <laughs> exactly okay? So, so you know, we with an integrative approach, we we try to actually look for root causes. We try to support the roots of um, the person instead of you know um, just medicating them and and uh, numbing their symptoms. It's it's sort of like um, pharmaceuticals to me are often like. Uh, you know, the quarterback who comes out of the game who needs a shot in his shoulder to get him back in the game, but you're not dealing with the um, the issue. Okay. Uh, and that's fine for an acute situation like, a, you know, a Super Bowl, but that's not great for getting to the bottom of, you know, getting your health balanced. Okay. And when if you had to guess of the people that come in or, or that you're, you know, what you're familiar with, how many people are taking pharmaceuticals that could probably, with addressing some of these other areas, not have to be on pharmaceuticals? Well, um, my practice is a little skewed because I tend to attract people who are not interested in pharmaceuticals. But um, I think that more and more, I think most of the people that I see don't need to be on long-term pharmaceuticals. Um, there are exceptions to that, but it's uh, it's pretty rare, I think, for a person to need long-term pharmaceuticals if they're going to um, be able to accomplish the things that you know we ask them to do and we help them to do um, on the natural side of things. Okay, so it sounds like pharmaceuticals. You know, when every what's the saying when when you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. It it it's it's just out of balance. That there there's a place for them, but maybe not everybody needs that particular treatment. Absolutely. I think there's a lot you can do before you go to the pharmaceuticals for most people. Okay. All right. Yeah. Um, I, I want to ask you this. Cause I, I, wrote, I read a book called uh, The Mood Cure by Julia Ross. Um, she talks about what are called false moods, moods that aren't grounded in something that's happening in our lives at the moment. The, um, these are moods that are a product of poor brain chemistry, that we're lacking certain amino acids in the brain. Um, and some of these moods can be depression or just feeling like we've got the blahs or a constant state of stress, um, or we could be too sensitive to life's ups, ups and downs. What can happen for me if I have alcohol or too much sugar? I get into just like a real irritable place. Like I just like, and I, it's mm -hmm. easy for me to find something in my life that to be irritable about. So I just don't <laughs> think that I'm having a false mood. I think it's, it's genuine. Like, yeah, yeah, I'm pissed off about this. Yep. Um, tell us a little bit about these these types of moods and, and your relationship with them? Yeah, so I like uh, Julia Ross's work. I'm, I'm a big fan. I, I think that, um, for example, in your, in your case, what you're talking about, the irritability after sugar or alcohol, you know, there are changes in the gut microbiome, the gut uh, bacteria population when we um, feed uh, sugar and alcohol into the gut. And you can see changes in the composition of the bacteria. And there can also be um, irritation in the lining of the gut. And these things will definitely cause changes in neurotransmitters. Um, the barrier that um, separates the inside of the gut from what we think of as our, our own body, um, the tissue behind that barrier, um, that barrier is made of the same um, structures as the blood-brain barrier. So when you start irritating the gut lining, 
um, and proteins that are starting to get into your system that don't belong there, you're going to have an immune response and you can often end up with brain inflammation that shows up as irritability and anger or depression and so forth. So um, there's a direct connection between the gut and the brain and um, well, the thing that I'm getting here is that the, the the two chemicals I'm most likely to reach for if I'm not enjoying my current state are going to be sugar and alcohol. They're they're very common, and right. those things are what are contributing to what is making me feel irritable or depressed or just stressed or not not that great. So I can that creates a cycle. Absolutely, yep. And um, people, and I can imagine feeling depressed if you said I couldn't have a drink or an ice cream every once in a while too. Right, right. <laughs> Yeah, and you know the the spike in the blood sugar leads to a trough in the blood sugar. So getting hypoglycemic, having low blood sugar after that spike, is where a lot of people really experience the irritability. So that's that's probably a component there too for a lot of people. Yeah. So there's depression. There's this kind of sense of blah. I don't really care about much. There's the like an anxiousness or a stress, irritability. Uh, there's a thing where we're just too sensitive to life's up and ups and downs for the guy listening out there. I just want to point it out. Like what if you, it's easy to attach content to whatever's happening. I'm depressed because of this, or I'm feeling blob mm-hmm. because I don't have anything to look forward to or whatever it might be. But just consider that it also could be a fog that you're in. It could be just a state of what's happening in a relationship between your gut and your brain. And the content of that is interchangeable. Um, uh, but, but you might just be, uh, a practice or, you know, getting rid of some of these things in your, in your diet that to clear this stuff up. And it might not be that your life is off track in some way. Um, I just, I just find that to be a really positive message to get out there. Absolutely. And, and there, there's a path to recovering all of these, um, physiologic imbalances, um, which is even more good news, you know, that there's, there are ways to do that, that are, um, very effective in my experience. So when is it okay to take meds? Like when is it, how, how does this guy know if he's sitting there, at, he's listening to this, he's going to start to self-diagnose, right? So, you know, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, so, you know, kind of paint a picture of, of when it might be time to consider medication. Obviously, it's up for the doctor there in a discussion there. But yeah, what's the difference there? Mm-hmm. Well, um, it, there's different factors. I, I think for me, one of the hard lines is that if a person's having suicidal thinking, I'm probably going to go to medication um, as a, as a starting point. Um, I think there's too much risk involved in, um, the, the length of time that it takes to heal that without medication, um, puts somebody at risk. So, I mean, that's, that's one thing. Mm -hmm. Obviously that's very extreme. Um, most people I work with don't have that as a presenting issue, but you know, it does come up. Um, other things, um, I think, are a little bit more complicated thinking about, you know, what is the level of disability that the person's experiencing with their um, challenges with mood? Are they missing work? Are they not showing up in their marriage? Um, are they going to lose their job? You know, things like that are going to have me reaching for bigger guns on the on the front end. But again, um, using pharmaceuticals um, doesn't have to be a long-term thing. And, you know, using them for three months, six months can be enough of the, you know, the cast on the broken leg to get, you want to saw that cast off at some point, you know, Mm -hmm. and get back to your life. So, so we'll, we'll, we'll do a lot of that kind of treatment with pharmaceuticals. So we minimize the long-term negatives. Okay. So there's an appropriate time and a place for that. Um, I can imagine that, 
most folks are not getting the treatment that you give that's a more holistic um, version and and that that doctors are, are quick to write scripts for medications perhaps there are guys out there that have been on medications for a long time what are they not aware of well, um, for the guys who've been on medication a long time, um, I think that they might not be aware that there are long-term risks of, you know, being on even mild antidepressants for a long time. Uh, diabetes is one risk. Um, you know, having uh, longer-term serotonin deficiencies, which is the dark cloud of depression you were talking about mm-hmm. with the Julia Ross, people are poor, you know, more prone to that if they take um, antidepressants long-term. I think um, it becomes difficult to kind of wean off of antidepressants the longer you take them. So um, I usually am hoping that if I'm going to use a treatment like that, it's going to be for a year or two. Unfortunately, a lot of people get, you know, 80% of the antidepressant prescriptions in this country are written by primary care doctors. Um, And those folks are just, those practitioners are highly stressed and they tend to see people every 10 minutes all day long and they don't really have time in their practice to really ask these important questions about what's your diet like, what's your activity level like, um, what's your stress level like. You know, they don't they don't have an hour and a half to get into the details of a person's life and then they just write a prescription. So I understand, you know, kind of the the logic of that, but it's it's sad to me that so many people are getting uh, medicated without um, even asking the question about what other things they could do first. So I'm I'm glad we're talking about it. Yeah. Well, and so let's say that the guy who's listening to this, he's starting to wake up. He wants something different than what he's been getting. What should he look for? What should he, okay, who's going to help him? Um, yeah. Like where yeah. does he begin? Where does he begin this process? Great. Well, you know, personally, I've learned a lot from naturopathic doctors and I think they have a tremendous amount to offer in terms of the big picture they're um, much better trained in this integrative, holistic approach to health than MDs are, to be honest. Um, you can you can look for an integrative physician in your local town. You know, um, doesn't have to be a psychiatrist. Uh, right now, there just aren't enough psychiatrists out there doing this kind of work, which is why we put together the masterclass to try to get more people trained up on this. But I, I think. Um, Reading books like Joey Ross's book, um, there are lots of good books out there on um, diet and, you know, gut and inflammation and chronic stress. Um, you know, those are good places to look. I'm hoping that the future of psychiatry is going to bring a lot more people access to this kind of work. Mm. Yeah, I get that, that you see from your perspective that there's a a, pers- um, a way to look at this and, and kind of have some check boxes here uh, of things to assess and consider. And that would help us point to understanding why this guy's having this mood. So give us a rundown of that. We haven't really dived into that yet. So what are the things that are most likely affecting his mood instead of a Zoloft deficiency? Right. So I think for me, number one is the gut. Um, I think that eating a paleo-style diet, which essentially translates into high-protein, high-fat with minimal carbohydrate, is much better for the brain than um, the standard American diet, which I don't need to go into what that is. Um, A lot of processed foods, pesticides, additives, chemicals, um, 
lots of refined carbohydrates that mm-hmm. spike your sugar and then cause that trough afterward. Um, so eating, eating whole foods, lots of vegetables, um, good protein with every meal, um, healthy fats like, um, grass fed meats and pastured eggs and avocado and coconut oil and that kind of stuff. Mm. I'm one of the people that that really struggles if I really cut the carbs and and I I think oh I just need to get through this phase, but after a couple right. of weeks I'm still just like running into walls and stuff. Mm-hmm. Are there different yeah. brain types that one size doesn't fit all? Well, I think it is very individual, and I'm like you. I I need to get some carbohydrate, or I just don't. I uh, feel like um, there's something off about how I feel every day. Yeah. So. You know, I try to stick with brown rice and quinoa and, you know, things like that um, to try to um, minimize the um, the sugar spike. Okay. All right. So we don't want to demonize carbs necessarily as a place for them, but less is better than what's typically considered acceptable in the standard American diet of, you know, tons of white stuff on every in every yeah. meal kind of thing. Right. Exactly. And, you know, the old food pyramid from the 70s where you know, you're supposed to eat mostly carbohydrates and, you know, and work your way up from there is not, uh, you know, it's not helpful. Okay. All of that stuff's impacting our, our mood. You're saying food is the big one. What else is impacting our mood? Well, chronic stress is another big issue for almost everybody. And, you know, there are all kinds of different sources of that for people, relationships, um, job, um, the fast-paced 21st century lifestyle, being on our devices all the time, um, not sleeping enough is a huge one for people. Um, you know, what's enough? What are we shooting for? <laughs> good question. Um, the sort of published averages that are normal are anywhere from six to ten hours a night. Mm-hmm. Okay, and so most people are about seven and a half or eight-hour people on average, but there is a wide range of variability there. So. You know, I'm I'm just as guilty as anybody of, you know, staying up too late on my device. And then, you know, all of a sudden it's midnight when I could have been asleep by 10, you know, mm-hmm. if I'd been more mindful. Mm-hmm. So sleep deprivation is a significant factor here um, that will deplete neurotransmitters and, you know, cause any number of these false moods. Okay. So on the device too much, not getting enough sleep, uh, too much stress. Just It sounds like just having a bar set in our head that this is how we need to be functioning and um, that's a, that's a thought to challenge. Like, is it really, do I really need to have all this stuff happening in my life? Um, and just stepping back and saying, no, this isn't necessarily mm-hmm. what's going to make me happy. Um, it's easy to just get kind of swept up in that. Uh, what else, what are some of the other things that are impacting mood? Well, certainly exercise is huge for mood. Um, you know, we have studies, uh, now that compare 30 minutes of exercise a day to, um, SSRI, and in, in one study it was Prozac, you know, the prototypical um, antidepressant, and came out equal in terms of benefit. Of course, you know, the longer-term benefits are much better with exercise than Prozac. So um, activity, um, you know, doing things that we enjoy doing, um, being with our friends um, and our family, in a, you know, in, in relaxed environments, I think is really important for mood. Um, there, there was one study that looked at um, social isolation as a risk factor for uh, heart disease and other medical illnesses. And they found that um, 
social isolation was worse than smoking cigarettes for your long-term <laughs> physical health. You just you just sent a spike of depression. <laughs> <laughs> that blew me away. I thought, wow, tobacco's pretty bad, but damn. Yeah. Wow. Well, okay. I, I like to flip this stuff. It's like, okay, I'm not getting time with friends enough. I'm working too much. I'm not sleeping enough. I'm eating like shit. Um, I'm not getting any exercise. Like, uh, how am I supposed to actually be in? How, how would I ever expect to be in a good mood? Uh, exactly. If, if you take those things away. But for a lot of us, we're in that boat. We're, we're kind of riding that. Yeah. We're hoping one day we'll get all the fires put out, and then we can finally get on to the important stuff. But, you know, up until then, I got I to gotta deprive myself. Well, that's right. And I think, um, you know, for guys in their 30s and 40s, a lot of it is all about building your career and building your your wealth and taking care of your family and, you know, balls to the wall, just going for it. And, um, you know, and that can that can take a toll. I see a lot of guys, you know, who, like I said, who have been successful and built, you know, really successful businesses and who, you know, in their late thirties are burning out and, and they've been living, you know, an entrepreneurial lifestyle for 10 years and it's catching up with them. Yeah. Uh, I know guys I in their it, early thirties that are burning out from this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you can do it for a while, but you know, your adrenal glands are not meant to handle that amount of, you know, burning the candle like that, uh, for, you know, more than frankly, a few minutes at a time, forget about a few years, you know? So, yeah. so that's a that's another important piece is the adrenal glands and how they function in this in this scenario. What do you mean by that? Tell, tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, so the adrenals are the kind of firefighters in the body. Their goal is to put out the fire and then go home and take a nap. And um, the fire is the stress of whatever's in front of you. You know, whether it's the the deadline or you know the the webinar that you were supposed to record last week or the you know, the uh, awkward meeting with your girlfriend's parents for the first time or, or whatever. So what happens with the adrenals is they make stress hormones. Um, they're designed to do that effectively in the short term, um, you know, like escaping from a saber-toothed tiger kind of phenomenon. And then it happens. Yeah. And then it happens. And that's great. And then you go in your cave and you relax and, you know, hope that another tiger doesn't come by today. Mm -hmm. But what happens in the modern world is we are dealing with stress all the time, all day long, and demands on our time and not enough time to digest our experience and, and relax. And so what ends up happening is the adrenals are pumping out high levels of adrenaline and cortisol uh, chronically. And it's like having a firefighter team that uh, never has any relief, that are always out in the buildings um, trying to put out fires, they get depleted over time. And um, I've seen guys where their adrenals are so shot that they, you know, they don't have any energy, they, uh, they can't sleep, they have a lot of these symptoms from all the different uh, categories of false moods, you know, mm -hmm. um, they can be flat and apathetic, they can be wired and stressed, um, they can be you know, completely, you know, uh, irritable and worried and anxious, not sleeping. So, um, the adrenals are a really nice, um, ally in, in getting people, um, better before they go to pharmaceuticals because supporting the adrenals can really bring them back into balance and get people feeling, you know, more energy, more, more joy, more satisfaction and better sleep. 
You know, as you describe this stuff, I'm getting, you know, two polarized paths. I can I can see where there's one guy that's just like, I don't have time for that other shit. Just give me a pill. Yep. Right? <clears throat> and then on the other end is, I really need to take a look at my life. I need to look at the choices I'm making here, um, how hard I'm driving myself, the stuff I'm choosing to believe that is important. That's huge. What if this stuff wasn't so important? What if I could throttle back a bit and create some more space in my life? But also just making some really basic but consistent lifestyle changes in terms of diet, exercise, and sleep. Um, how I, I kind of, what, Do you see the tide shifting from, from, away from just give me a pill and, and I've got the quick fix to, um, no, I, I want to make this, this bigger lifestyle shift? I think people are becoming more aware. I think um, the promise that antidepressants had uh, have have you know started to kind of fade in the um, you know has sort of lost their luster over the last few years as you've seen more and more research come out on um, just how effective they really are and you know what the long long term risks are and uh, more and more vocal psychiatrists coming out and um, criticizing you know, the pharmaceutical industry and how they suppressed negative studies and published positive ones to kind of spin how effective things were. Um, and just more and more options like the mood cure um, for people to actually take, you know, take more control over their health. I think that's the other piece that can be so empowering for people is to just um, get coached up to take how to take control of their own life and their own mm -hmm. health, as opposed to you know, it, it, there's sort of a defeatism in, in coming in and, you know, having to, it, it's almost like this, um, I'm broken kind of mentality, you know, that, mm -hmm. that can set in with, um, with the pharmaceuticals and the, and the medical, um, approach to these problems. Sure. They need you to believe that so they can continue to feed you that stuff. If, if, they, <laughs> exactly. if we knew our, our found, you know, like the foundational state is that sense of engaged, peace and acceptance then we can't we can't sell shit to you in that place oh so true okay yeah um let's talk about ptsd um i know you're doing some work with that tell us a little bit about that work um that you're doing with ptsd yeah thanks for asking about that we're really excited um just last week we um got approval from fda to move on from uh, phase two clinical studies into phase three, which is the final phase before um, we can seek approval from FDA to make this new treatment uh, widely available to people. So um, it looks like if things go well, it'll just be one more study before um, you know we can help make that happen. And can you tell us a little bit about what you, the actual treatment that you guys are doing? Yeah, so um, it's a novel approach on on a number of levels um number one is we're using mdma which is also um there's a there's a version of mdma on the street called ecstasy which is not really mdma anymore that's another story but people might know of mdma as ecstasy so i'll just mention that um we're treating people with mdma plus psychotherapy at the same time to uh, alleviate their symptoms of PTSD. And in our phase two trials, we had um, on average two thirds of the people who entered the trial um, didn't have PTSD anymore at the end of the trial, wow. which is about two and a half, two, anywhere from two to three times 
as effective as what's FDA approved right now for PTSD. So wildly more uh, successful treatment with uh, very minimal side effects. Okay. So this is different than the stuff that's on the street or being passed around at parties. It's not a party favor that you guys are are working with. Is that correct? Right. Exactly. So we're working with 100% pure uh, MDMA. We're not, you know, giving people street drugs, which, you know, it's unfortunate that people who maybe think they're taking MDMA or taking um, more often than not a lot of impurities and in some cases, no MDMA. Um, so, so no, this is, um, this is a DEA approved, FDA approved um, clinical trial with uh, the real thing. And so how does this work? Because we just talked for 30 minutes about pharmaceuticals and now here's a drug and it's having a huge effect uh obviously with PTSD. So can you give us some insight into, into what's happening there? Right. So um, good, good question. So I think when PTSD can be a really stubborn, difficult thing to, to get healed. And a lot of the people we've treated in our phase two trials had decades of symptoms and they had tried, you know, dozens of medications. They'd been in therapy. We had one person who had over a thousand therapy sessions in her background, um, who was a member of our phase two study. So, um, I think that there's a, there's a place for a pharmaceutical like MDMA, especially with real severe PTSD. Um, and, you know, taking a pharmaceutical on three occasions in a controlled clinical environment is a lot different um, you know, from somebody taking MDMA, you know, hundreds of times in a rave environment where they're mixing it with all kinds of other things and there's all kinds of impurities in the pill they're taking. So um, this is not sort of a, I'm not advocating for that. I'm, I'm advocating for, you know, a very minimalistic um, intervention here where, you know, you, you undergo a protocol that takes about four months or five months to get through. And then at that point you're done. Mm. Um, and so, and you're also we, doing therapy at the same time. Is that right? So there is there, exactly. There's, and there's something happened neurologically where you're rewiring yes. the brain. Is that right? Exactly. So thanks for bringing me back to that. So the MDMA has two major effects in the brain that are relevant to PTSD. One is, um, a massive release of serotonin, uh, which helps people to feel relaxed, um, And, um, but the other piece that I think is even more important than the serotonin is a secondary effect of increasing the hormone oxytocin and oxytocin is an important hormone because it makes us more, um, open in, uh, sharing with another person. So it makes us more, um, less defended and more able to share difficult things Mm. with another person. It also makes us more, feel more connected to other people. Mm -hmm. And maybe the most important effect is that there are receptors on the structure in the brain. That's probably most central in the physiology of PTSD is the amygdala and the amygdala is our fight or flight fear, uh, structure in the brain. That's very connected to the adrenal glands. So what happens on the MDMA for, about six or eight hours is um, the person getting the psychotherapy is able to open to the bad things that happened to them, go back to the scene of the crime, so to speak, and rewire that memory 
um, draining out the negative emotions associated with that memory. So, you know, you, you get to, um, you get to come out on the other side, having that memory without the emotional, uh, tag that keeps you so stuck in your PTSD. And it's actually rewiring the brain. I think that's the, that's the, the part here that's fascinating is, is, uh, the neuroplasticity. The brain is different than it was after, as you said, the crime was committed, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Wow. Yeah. It's, it's, it's really a powerful, um, powerful treatment. And I, I hope that the phase three trial will go as well as the phase two. So we can prove that, you know, cause you need a bigger trial to prove that it's, it's really going to be effective on a large scale. So right on, right on. Well, you've yeah. described how you work with folks individually, uh, addressing all kinds of things that are happening for us. Um, tell us a bit about psychiatry masterclass. What is that? So uh, a couple years ago, two um, two friends of mine and I, actually three friends at that time, now it's two of us, a uh, total of three, sorry, um, decided that, you know, our practices were so full of, of people, you know, breaking the door down saying, you know, I want to do everything in my power before I go to medications, that we just really needed to train more people to do it. And there's such a high demand for that right now. Um, so we, we started teaching seminars and, um, mainly it's aimed at people who are tired of, um, not getting great results with medicating people and, you know, want more tools so that they can be more effective. So these are the, the, tr- the people doing the treatment to others, helping others. Exactly. They're, they're coming to, okay. Just want to make That's that right. clarification. Yeah. So, um, you know, we, it's been mostly physicians, but th- there's been a few, um, primary care doctors and some naturopaths and a few psychotherapists, but it's mainly aimed at the, the prescri- prescribing uh, practitioner. Okay. Yeah. And so just helping them have a bigger toolbox other than writing scripts. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. Got it. Okay. And, they can, and if you're listening to this and that sounds like something that you'd be interested in, you can learn more at psychiatrymasterclass.com. And if you want to learn more about Will, you can learn, uh, you can go to willvanderveer.com. Uh, Will, thanks so much. This is fascinating stuff. I love learning uh, in this way, and I appreciate you doing this work. I'm really excited about the stuff you're doing with PTSD, too. Oh, thanks so much, Trip. It's great to join you. If these interviews are helping you, then please visit The New Man on iTunes and leave us a positive review so others can discover the show more easily. Thanks for listening.